Storms drown out the others And the ones who couldn't dream This freedom music gave them Was worth more than anything They don't know What they got Till it's gone uh, Dave, I think he's bringing some Zach Brown uh, band with him to, to oh, you know, to, I always kind of laughed at it. It's like the Zach Gallon band, but I think it's the Zach Brown band. And welcome to the Man on Second podcast on the rapidly growing Real Voices of the Game Productions Network. I'm Joe Forsaro, joined with Dave D'Agostino. And as always, our mission is to raise the baseball IQs of our audience, and we'll do that today with our special guest, Glenn Geffner. Uh, Geff's a repeat, you know, he's making a second appearance on the show. But before we bring Geff in, let's bring in Dave D'Agostino. Dave, hey, how you doing, buddy? What announcements you got for us? Doing great. Just kind of a reminder, 17,300 subscribers as of today. Uh, we hit a spike last night uh, from a Facebook post we had and all the shows we had this week. So encourage people to continue to download, listen, like, subscribe. Make sure you rate and review. We battle the analytics of the podcast world, just like they do in baseball. We are represented now in 72 countries, grassroots, all the way to Major League Baseball front offices. So we got the ear of the right people. And as Joe said, we keep trying to build that better baseball IQ. Hit us up on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher, whatever your favorite streaming device is. If you have a different one, I will certainly subscribe to it. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're very active with the network on there, as Joe is with Man on Second. Uh, hit me up on Facebook. We had over 300 questions today. Yesterday, over 700. I get back to one person online live, and then I get everybody individually. And just a reminder to our audience, uh, as we continue to grow with our network, just prepare. We're, we're, we're embracing some uncomfortable truths out there sometimes in baseball and, and in the world. And just want to make sure that you remember that our shows in general, from Monday to Friday, we have very little time for the comfortable lies out there. So we're going to hit you hard. So buckle your seatbelt and get ready to go. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we're doing a Dave especially doing a great job tying all these shows together, and he's just uh, kind of the anchor to all this, and we appreciate all that that Dave does. And uh, we're going to bring uh, Glenn Geffner in. He really needs no introduction. Uh, Glenn is a longtime uh, radio voice in, in Major League Baseball, formerly uh, voice on the radio with the Miami Marlins. Um, these days, Geff's uh, doing a little bit of everything, uh, building his brand as well, and and always a a uh, real interesting guest with some great thoughts. And uh, Glenn Geffner, welcome, my friend. Good to be back with you again, Joe and Dave. Let's talk some baseball. Yeah, absolutely. But before we dig in, let's uh, get everyone caught up on what you're doing and how they can support you and uh, and tell us uh, how, how everyone can reach you. Well, you know what I'm doing lately a lot of, it's something I haven't done in a long time. I'm doing a lot of writing. Uh, I started a Substack, Glenn Geffner at Substack, or glenngeffner.substack. Dot com And I'm writing just about every day about Major League Baseball and the Marlins. And there certainly is a Marlins bent to a lot of what I do. But as time goes on, I'm doing more and more baseball-wide stuff and just offering some perspectives. And quite honestly, being maybe a little bit more honest than you can be when you wear the logo of a specific team on your polo shirt. Uh, and just you know, doing my best to offer some perspective on how things really are, how sometimes maybe things aren't exactly what they look like. So it's been a lot of fun and the response has been great. Uh, I offer subscriptions, $5 a month, a discounted rate of only $50 for the full year of content. Again, glengafter.substack.com. And still, as I think I just started last time we talked, 
doing this play-by-play coaching program. I work with mostly high school and college students who are aspiring sports play-by-play broadcasters uh, across the country. We do it via Zoom. I've got a website, glengeffner.com, for anybody who wants to learn more about that. But that's been really successful and incredibly rewarding being able to do that. Uh, I taught at Florida Atlantic University again this past semester, which just wrapped up a sports broadcasting course. So I'm keeping busy, even though I'm not at the ballpark every night these days. No, that that's great, and we're we're certainly supportive of you, Glenn, and uh, and uh, wishing you the best. And because that's kind of what we're doing, right, Dave? We're we're building it, you know, as we see it. We're being entrepreneurial, and uh, you know, so we we wish you all the best. And I just kind of want to we're going to hit on some overviews and, and broad topics on on a lot of journey. We're going to spend this podcast not so much in the weeds of baseball, but we will talk some prospects. But I, we're going to talk about roles of announcers, roles of media, and you know. As everyone knows, I've been retired from MLB a couple of years, but back doing what I what I'm doing in the roles I am comfortable doing. But it, there's, you know, let's talk first on the on the radio side, they, um, and offer some context for the first month of the year. You know, because teams, some teams start out super hot like Tampa Bay, some teams start out super cold like the St. Louis Cardinals. You know, a team like the Marlins who've been surprising record-wise, although I think uh, some of the statistical stuff will show that they're much worse than their record is. But you know, credit to them; they're they're hanging in, hanging tough at sixteen and sixteen as we're we're doing this. But my point is, where did you get? How did you try to keep the first month? Because I never really try to get too high or low the first month of the year. I usually I'm not on Twitter after every win saying they're going to World Series or every loss saying it's doomsday. Because it usually it takes about a month to to kind of get some footing, another month to guys kind of lock in. Then by June, July, you start seeing a little bit what you should be. And it's a really good question, and I think it's an important question because it's so easy to get carried away at the start of the year. And I think a lot of times people forget if somebody's hitting 182 at the end of April and that 182 is up on a scoreboard, that's all you see, it's the end of the world. But a lot of guys, most guys, are going to hit 182 over the course of a month at some point in the season. But when it's the middle of the year, it's not quite as obvious. When you started by hitting 301 and now you're down to 269, it's not as big a deal as seeing that 182 on the scoreboard. Or when Pittsburgh gets off to the blazing start that they got off to, they cooled off a little bit lately, uh, you notice that. They might have a similar stretch in June. People don't talk about it as much. Everything is so magnified at the start of the year. So I think – you know, you talk a lot about just trusting the process and respecting the process. I think you need to look around baseball and say, you know what? Maybe Tampa Bay is not going to play 800 ball all year, but I believe in Tampa Bay because you know who this team is. And yeah, 26 and 6 is a bit extreme, but Tampa Bay is going to be there in the end. You look at a team like Pittsburgh and say, hey, it's a great story. You'd love to see them find a way to sustain this. It's probably unlikely if you're being realistic about it, though. But then. There's that gray area. Look at a team like the St. Louis Cardinals, whoever he thought was going to win that division probably pretty easily. And you look at the start they're off to, and to me, I put a little bit more stock in their record being what it is because you look at that ball club now and say, wait a minute, maybe they didn't have as much pitching as we thought they might have had, and maybe they're going to miss Molina more than we thought they were going to miss him. And, and so I think it's an, it's a process of knowing what to believe what not to believe, when to believe your eyes, when to believe your gut. And and so there's no hard and fast rule to it, but I think you do need to be very vigilant. When I work with Terry Francona in Boston, he was fond of saying there's a reason why they call them averages. And Manny Ramirez might have been hitting 182 at the end of April 
and Alex Cora might have been hitting 360, but water finds its level. And at the end of the year, after 162, you know that Manny is going to do what Manny always does. And you know when a game is on the line, you want that guy hitting 182 at the plate because of who he is over the long haul. So uh, you're right. We, we tend to overreact in the good. We tend to overreact in the bad early in the season. And it's a really dangerous thing to do. Yeah, and, and I look at it this way. And Todd Hollinsworth was our guest last week. And Holly made a really good point. He said he looked at the first month sometimes as who was the prepared, who was most prepared entering the season. Now, you could read that a lot of different ways. If you're a, a young team like the Marlins with a new manager, I'm not surprised they were going to play a little bit above their heads. They're going to, you know, certainly the manager, new manager, new coaching staff, they're all trying to prove something, uh, you know, because we saw that. You know, we saw that on, on young teams before. They, they have really good spring trains, even though the Marlins' record in spring wasn't very good. But there's an urgency there to say, hey, you know, we're going to fight, we're going to battle and, and and do all this good stuff. While, you know, some of the more veteran teams, like the Yankees, yes, the Yankees have a lot of injuries, but they're also the Yankees. And they still, even without Judge and Stanton in the lineup because of injuries, there's still a couple of games over 500. You know, by August, September, they're going to be a 90-plus win team. You know, Rodon hasn't so, thrown a pitch yet for the Yankees this year. Yeah, you yeah. mentioned no Stanton, no Judge. Correct. That's correct. another great example. The Yankees yeah. are in last place today. Are the Yankees going to be in last place in September? I, I really doubt it. Yeah, it's just because they kind of know how to enter the season, hit the season. And I'm with you. I, with the Cardinals in general, they're they're too good to be this bad. But like you say, there are some alarming signs, and it kind of started with Wainwright getting hurt in at the World Baseball Classic, not pitching in the weight room, you know, and mm-hmm. starting the year on the IL, and you know what he brings to the table, uh, and you know, so so there is some signs there, but I still have to believe the the Cardinals aren't going to be the worst team in baseball, and feel they're going to be a 500 ish type of team when it's all said and done. Uh, but obviously, it's early, and. Uh, you know, that that's where, as a journalist, I try to really always offer perspective and never try to oversell the team or or undersell it. Just kind of realize some days you're good, some days you're bad. You kind of let it play out. Because like you said, with the Manny Ramirez analogy, you know, he's Manny Ramirez. He's going to he's going to hit 300, whether he hit 180 or not first month. But this takes us into the role of of journalism in general. And I and I bring this this question up to you, Gaff. I was at a high school district last night. As I'm driving home, I had uh, I had MLB Network radio on. I was listening to them, and I guess Jack Flaherty and the Cardinals had another bad night. And they showed they they played the audio of the the media interviewing Jack after the game, and you know some pointed questions, you know the St. Louis media. But you know we as someone who's done this for for 30 years or so, 40 years that I did it, where you're talking to athletes after their worst moments. It's not always the most comfortable, and you don't always phrase the question exactly right, uh, depending on you're reading the temperature of the, the the person you're interviewing, how hostile or how upset they are. And and so at the end of it, you know, Flaherty's being pretty candid about where they are. And and the radio, the, the hosts on the network are like ripping the media for how they phrase their questions. And I'm like, wait a minute, you know, what are we what are we doing as as a journalism? culture what's it become do we just have to rah-rah for them all these athletes all the time if you if you ask a tough question or if you didn't phrase it 100 percent accurate you're the problem not the player who went out and and you know didn't get the job done 
I, I hear what you're saying. I will say this, and this is something I talk about with my students a lot when we discuss interviewing specifically, is two people can essentially ask the same question, but the way you present the question can make it come off very differently. And you can elicit the exact same answer by an, asking a question one way uh, and asking it a different way, but you can be a bit more incendiary if you're not careful. Now, that said, I also think, and Joe, you know, both of us have been in major league clubhouses for a lot of years, and you're in there every day, and you develop relationships, and people know you. I think part of what you get when you have a veteran journalist, a veteran broadcaster in the mix, is a certain amount of respect and trust and credibility, not just with the people who read you or who listen to you, but with the people with whom you're interacting in that clubhouse. And Joe, it might have been easier for you to ask a player a question than somebody who that player's never seen before or somebody who that player knows isn't going to be around tomorrow and may not be accountable for whatever reason. So part part of what you do as a journalist, as a broadcaster, you hope over time is develop a reputation and develop that sense of trust among the people you work with that makes it easier to ask some of those tougher questions at times, makes it easier to get better answers, and, and simply makes it easier to do your job. And that is a benefit to the person who reads you or who listens to you. And, and that's why I'm a little concerned. And I think we might have talked about this when I was out with you guys a couple of months ago about the trend to get younger and cheaper in the media with writers and with broadcasters. Oh, anybody can write a game story. Anybody can call a game on the radio. It's not that easy. And part of experience is perspective and context and relationships and things that you develop over time, things that you learn over time, maybe by making mistakes when you were younger, just starting out in your career. But when you have a trusted voice, a, a trusted person at the laptop, that makes a difference. And it's a big benefit to the reader and to the listener. And I feel like baseball-wide, sports-wide, and really anywhere in journalism these days, you're seeing less and less of that as people race to the bottom to save money, uh, to bring in youth, they'll say. But what they're saying is, look, we just don't want to spend what we used to spend. And at the end of the day, whether they realize it or not, they're sacrificing a lot, and it's the reader and the listener who loses out in that case. Yeah, you know, I always think about how I'd approach, and, and as you said, you know, is once you're as a beat writer, which I've done for over 20 years, you you develop, like you say, those relationships, the trust factor. You know, the pitcher may know that you know he's dealing with something. Uh, maybe the arm is 100% right. You, you Sometimes you know things in confidence more than others. But I always, you know, if there was an interview post-game where it was a little tense, or if I didn't phrase a question exactly the right way, um, and they might have a little like look at each other, you know, strangely in the, in the the clubhouse the night before, because like, hey, what are you getting now? What are you doing? You know, I would always go up to that player the next day, and like sometimes I'd apologize myself. I say, hey, you know, I I meant to say it this way. I asked it awkwardly, or I'd say, hey, are you okay with that? You know, you saw where I was coming from. You know, I, I got to come down hard on you when you know. When, when this is going on and, you know, and, and a lot of times you develop that, that trust even more, you know, when you go and back the next day and you're professional right. and you say, Hey, look, you that's know, professional I have maturity. and most of them will say, most of them will say through the careers, Hey, we know you're, you're, you have a job to do and it's part of the job. And, uh, and so I just kind of maturity. don't want to see that lost. Yeah. Right. Uh, you, you develop that over time doing the job and you might not have had that professional maturity the day you walked off the University of Alabama campus, it's not the kind of thing you learn in a classroom. It is the kind of thing you learn by being in the real world and by having a lot of different 
encounters, good ones, bad ones. You can read the room. You can read somebody's eyes. And again, to have the maturity and the confidence that it takes to go back to that player and say, hey, I wish I wouldn't have said that, or this is what I was really going at. You know, that furthers the bond that you've already developed with those players who you know, but it makes you better at your job. And that's the kind of thing that you don't get with a less experienced journalist or broadcaster. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, Dave, you got something? I'm, we're starting to get a good feel because I know exactly when you're going to come to me now. <laughs> it's a, a, yeah, and, and you got either one of you guys can take this because you're both experienced in that realm. And of course, I'm, I'm a novice just getting into this interview world. But as a, as a coach, and I do a lot of negotiations, there's certain canons that I try to stay away from when, I'm, when, I, when I want dialogue. For instance, I, I rarely ask the question why because it comes off accusatory. I may say, hey, it looks like, sounds like, acts like. Are there certain canons when you're interviewing a player like or a manager, sensitive situation that you either go to or stay away from with, with broad, broadcasting or interviewing? Not the cookie cutter, but just some certain canons that maybe our aspiring broadcasters can grab onto. Well, yeah, I'll say yeah, a couple yeah. of things. Yeah, the first thing I would say is if I'm doing a one-on-one with somebody and I'm going to ask a question along those lines, I'm going to tell him or her before I ask the question, before we start the interview, hey, just a heads up, I'm going to ask you about this and you know, give you the chance to respond. And they'll appreciate that. They won't be caught off guard. They won't feel as though you're trying to corner them or something. So I, I think that's part of it. Uh, and in general, if I'm doing an interview with somebody – I'm going to give them a sense before we do it. Hey, you know, I'm looking to go about five minutes and we're going to hit on this, this and that. A lot of the time, I'll try to just give them a couple of bullet points. This is where I'm looking to go with this. It makes them more comfortable because this might strike a lot of people as unusual, but you know this from your experience. uh, A lot of guys kind of clam up when you put a microphone in front of them. And people who might have a great conversation standing in front of their locker with you one-on-one when you're just chit-chatting or at the batting cage when you're just chit-chatting, you put that microphone in front of them and people tense up a little bit. They get a little bit nervous. So for me, it's always important to try to make the person I'm interviewing feel comfortable at the outset. And if you have time for a little bit of small talk before you get going, that's ideal. If you tell them, hey, we're going to go this amount of time and I'm going to you know, hit on these couple of topics, I think that makes it easier for them. Uh, and then it is about when you talk about asking a tough question, being conscious of how you ask that question. And and you got to be careful. You got to be sensitive. You don't have to be negative and accusatory. But you do need to be delicate sometimes with some people. And you can get the right answer, the, the good answer by doing that. It's not about putting somebody uh, on the spot and making them uncomfortable because they're not going to respond to you the way you hope they will if you do that. But I've always said, and I tell my students this all the time, for me, interviewing is the single toughest thing that I do in broadcasting that I have done over the years. For me, the play-by-play, the flow of the game, it comes much more naturally. But thinking about where I want to go, how I'm going to get from point A to point Z in an interview, kind of mapping things out without writing out questions, but knowing where I want to start, knowing where I want to finish up, uh, and having an idea how I'm going to get there is a bit of a challenge. And uh, the other thing, well, there are a lot of things, but one of the other key things I tell people about doing interviews specifically is – Sit down to talk with somebody. The the key to doing a good interview is being a great listener. And kind of like the conversation that the three of us are having right here, you may have some areas you want to go with me in this conversation. But if I say something that takes a discussion a totally different direction, you've got to be nimble and you've got to be able to adjust to that. Because I might tell you something that takes this conversation an entirely 
different place, a better place, potentially. Uh, and if you're just going down a list of questions, okay, my first question is this, my second question is that, my third question is that, you're going to miss those opportunities. So you got to be a good listener. And again, when you talk about interviewing, one of the keys I tell people all the time is every question ought to end with a question mark. Questions shouldn't be commands. And you hear this a lot in press conferences where people basically have their stories written and they're just looking for a quote to plug in. Tell me about the 2-2 pitch that you threw in the sixth inning. Talk about this. Rather than asking a question about the 2-2 pitch, uh, I don't like when I hear those commands. Talk about, tell me about. Uh, for me, that's kind of lazy on the part of an interviewer. Yeah, and I also I also like the, uh, I'm curious or I want to know. Well, yeah, you're the one asking <laughs> the question. Yeah, that's, of course, you want to start off that way. But I think, you know, Geff, in, in answer to Dave's question, uh, framing the question, and that's what, what Geff noted that he said to his students, is very important when you're dealing with a sensitive topic. For one, like I, the way I approach it is now I wasn't broadcast. You know, I was print. So I need words. Um, broadcast might need a animal. reaction. Might need a reaction. And may actually want that. You know that little give and take, so they could put it on on the news or 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 their show on the radio to say, "Here's my back and forth," and that plays well. So I I need I need an answer, and I preferably want an answer that's thoughtful, not a reactionary. Hey, what are you asking that for? Where you know you're eliciting an emotional response. So that's me trying to read the the person I'm interviewing, how I feel the re, the reaction is going to be. So I'm framing it there and and so that's kind of how I'm approaching it because it doesn't do me any good to have the the person just clam up and walk away and then you you got nothing out of the interview you want some sort of um accountability for the moment normally uh, the other on the flip side I think sometimes we we beat up a player too much like okay play, a reliever prime example closer comes in gives up the two run homer instead of winning the game by a run they lose by a run uh he feels terrible He's at the at his locker, you know, being accountable, stand up, gives the explanation. And then there's like eight follow-ups. <laughs> it's like he just gave the explanation. That's all we needed was the explanation. That was his responsibility. He's accountable. He explained the moment. He doesn't have to sit around and beat himself up for 30 more minutes on that. So I always try to be sensitive in that regard. Uh, on for to me also, I look at who do you want to be more pointed at on on whether it's the players in the clubhouse or the manager or the front office is expectations. You know, if you're dealing with a team that's probably not that good, how much are you going to really blame players who are on the field to gain experience, uh, whether to allow a prospect to come up or, you know, you're just not that good. So, I'm, you know, if I've already addressed that, hey, this is going to be a lean year when you lose their 80th game and by June I'm not sitting around crushing the players for blowing a save that's now we're at a bigger picture type of level are who the who's the next wave of guys up and and where where's the direction of this going and Joe to that point I always think about it from the manager's perspective when for example Don Mattingly in recent years had to sit with the media before every game and after every game and answer all the same questions over and over and over again. And he couldn't say what so many of us knew, hey, you can't give me a donkey and win the Kentucky Derby. That's just the reality. He couldn't say that, and he had to kind of come up with thoughtful and polite answers when he got the same questions over and over again. 
But how often can you ask about the bullpen coming up short? Or how often can you answer the question about losing another one-run game when you lose 40 of them in a single season? You know, I, I feel for the managers in situations like that because unlike the players, they've got to answer the questions literally every single day before the game and after the game. And when you're in the spot that Donnie was in in recent years here, that's a hard, hard job. And I don't think people appreciate that enough. No, I, I agree. It's, it was to the point, too, where you'd sit there and I'd ask one or two questions to Donnie. He'd look at me. I'd look at him. We both knew I didn't need to ask another one. He knew I I knew what was going on. And it just, okay, you did your job. Let's go ask the players what they thought. And then then I would tell younger writers, this is one of 162. You're not everyone's going to be a home run. This is one of 162. You don't, you don't, mm-hmm. you don't put in it. You don't not put in an honest day's work, but you don't try to make more of it than than you should. You know. You know, Dave, what else you got? No, ironically, that was an impromptu question, and and uh, the way Glenn answered it made me feel good about my asking interview questions. So, um, we were, we were talking a little bit before the show about prospects, and you know, and this is part of the writer's responsibility too, and the interviewer. Uh, you know, for instance, I'll give you a live example. Yuri Perez, 11 strikeouts, five innings. Um, you guys are going into an interview situation. In your mind, what's your responsibility as a as a writer, reporter, interviewer um, in regards to, I guess, overdoing how quickly the the prospect should, should rise up? Because first three, he had 11 strikeouts, five innings. The first things I saw is Perez earns his, his movement up to the Marlins big league. Uh, roster. What, what would you see your responsibility? How would you approach that situation? I yeah, think it's take, where we take it first. Yeah, I was gonna say, I think it's kind of where we started about uh, how you overreact to things that happen at the very start of a baseball season with a prospect, a 20 year old like Yuri Perez, who's at double A already, which is a tremendous accomplishment. I think if I'm covering him on a daily basis, I'm constantly thinking about the big picture uh, and trying to see where he is today, where he needs to improve, where he has improved, what he needs to do to take that next step. I mean, Tampa Bay's talked about this a lot over the years. With all the the success they've had developing players, especially pitchers, uh, you know, they try not to promote a pitcher from A ball to double A until they are convinced he's ready to crush it in double A. And the same thing from double A to triple A and triple A to the big leagues. So often over the years, you've seen teams like the Marlins just promote players out of sheer necessity, not because they're ready, not because they've earned the opportunity. And a lot of times you can do more harm than good by rushing someone along. Uh, you know, talking about the Marlins specifically here for a second, I'd be pretty concerned right now about the Marlins pitching depth with where they are having lost Johnny Cueto for a bit, having lost Trevor Rogers for a bit. Neither one of those guys being sure thing locks to begin with. But now you look at who they've been replaced with and the struggles many of those pitchers have had. Uh, you know, and, and the assumption is, hey, well, at some point we're just going to plug Yuri Perez in here and this 20-year-old just turned 20 last month is going to light it up from day one. doesn't happen like that very often. And the other things I don't think it's been discussed a lot with Yuri Perez when people think about him being a savior at some point this season. And I think in many circles there's an assumption he's going to be up at some point this year. How much can Yuri Perez give you at the big league level in August and September of this season? This is a 20-year-old who in his first pro season in 2021 threw 78 innings in A-ball. Last year, A-ball and double-A, he threw 77 innings total. 
So this is not a guy who's going to throw 150, 160 innings at any level this year. And then you think about pitching at the major league level where one inning is not the same as an inning in A ball or double A and being strong as the year is going on and the games matter more. So I'd be really cautious with Yuri Perez. And I would also defer to the baseball people, to the scouts, the people who really know what they're watching, not just looking at the stat line and seeing 11 strikeouts over five innings. How does this guy really look from a baseball perspective? What's the level of competition he's facing right now? Because it's going to get better when he makes the jump to AAA or to the big leagues. And so I'm careful looking at nothing but statistics when you watch a player succeed in the minor leagues. I, for me, rely on baseball people and scouts to make those judgments. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's funny, Gaff. Um, Yuri, as soon as Trevor Rogers got hurt a, a couple of weeks ago, I, some of my people were already hinting at me. They're here, and Yuri Perez is going to get. They're, they're already thinking of promoting Yuri Perez, and I'm thinking, oh boy, you know, here, here is to exactly to your point. It's okay. I just I called up his numbers. He said he turned 20 on what April 13th, uh, April 15th. So he's barely 20. Uh, he's thrown 25 innings this year at Double A. He has 180 minor league innings. And Yuri Perez has tremendous upside, clearly one of the better, one of the best pitching prospects in baseball. Yet he is super young being asked to do much, uh, you know, and, and it's funny because just this morning I'm reading a story, uh, Tyler Kepner, our friend at the New York Times, had a really great story on Tampa Bay Rays. And when the Rays found themselves in trouble with injury, they signed, what, 35-year-old Chase Anderson got him in their system, brought him up. He threw like three scoreless innings, helped him win a game recently. What the Marlins have failed to do, in my opinion, is they don't get – yes, Quaida was supposed to be the guy, that veteran guy, but not everyone has to be – well, they spent $8 million on him, which was not a smart move. And these other teams, they'll get a guy or two that's like a Chase Anderson, a guy that could be a bridge, someone that could – you know allow you to develop Yuri Perez, not rush Yuri Perez, because Yuri Perez still struggles out of the stretch. He never goes more than five innings. Um, there are secondary pitches that need to be tightened up. Just because he could dominate a double-A lineup twice through, not three times through, now he's in the big leagues because your pitching depth that you had is now down to this. And and I think that's it for him, those are questions I ask a little more critically to the front office uh, if I were there asking Kim Ang like and Skip Schumacher what are you what is the ra- the rationale to promote this player because if he gets hurt you know you could set this whole thing back to the point of who knows when they could recover now look at Max Meyer last year who was brought up and in his second start towards UCL and needed Tommy John surgery. And some have said, well, look, Jose Fernandez did it when he was 20 years old. Jose yeah, he's Fernandez. The one, he's the one in a thousand. Right. He, I don't even think he's once in a generation. Jose Fernandez may have been a once in a lifetime kind of talent to come up and do what he did at the age of 20. Uh, and he, he was built differently, mentally built differently, physically than just about anybody else. Also hadn't had some of the injury concerns that Yuri Perez has had at the start of his professional career, you got to be sensitive to that as well. So uh, it, it's a tough call, but 
you know, you look back over the years, and Joe, you can probably rattle off a bunch of names as well, but I go back to when I first got here in 2008, Brad Hand was a guy who was rushed to the big leagues, and then it became this constant cycle of up and down, big leagues to AAA and back, rotation, bullpen. All of a sudden, you run out of time, you run out of options with him, you lose him on waivers in San Diego Padres. Brad Hand was on to have a very good major league career. Andrew Miller was another guy who was rushed to the big leagues, and then he was up and down, and he was yeah. in the bullpen, he was in the rotation, back and forth. You know what? When he was finally elsewhere and able to kind of settle in and just be put in one spot, he had a very good major league career. But over the years, a lot of teams do this, particularly when they're in the kind of financial position the Marlins are in. But the Marlins certainly have at times promoted people because they have to, not because it's the best thing necessarily for the player long term. And I think you need to be really careful with that with a talent like Yuri Perez, who has a chance to be an absolute superstar. But you got to make sure he's ready. Yeah, yeah. This is, yeah, it is frustration. I, I, you know, I could say more than I want to say on this type of stuff. But this is what happens when you're you're also saying, "Oh, we're a playoff team," but then you're also saying, "Well, we're a playoff team, but as long as we're not playing the Mets or the Braves because they kick <laughs> right. their butt all the time," and they're applauding that. Oh, we're not going to see the Braves until late June or whatever. Well, guess what? You know, now you're the best you're hoping for is third place and the Phillies haven't hit their stride yet. So there's still a fourth place roster in terms of their talent level, but you're, you're making Yuri Perez be the savior and hoping. And, you know, and Jack McKean always would talk about that. Yeah. You're hoping, you're hoping this guy will do it. And, you know, so it's just, it's, it's very confusing to me. And it's what's damage is, is players and players development and what they do. It's not about because your Twitter followers are all up in arms because, you know, somebody had a bad outing. And so we need to bring up the number one pitching prospect. It's again, not everyone is Jose Fernandez, as you noted. And those are fewer and far between because a lot of these young pitching prospects, they get up and they're not used to dealing with, you know, traffic on the bases, how they feel their position, uh, you know, how they're going to deal with the big league environment, you know, being on the road and, you know, at Wrigley or someplace like that. What's that going to do to them? Some of them embrace it and run with it and they're, they're natural, but even the best ones have usually got, get sent down. It isn't the goal to make sure when you're up, you stay up, not, oh, well, he had a bad couple of weeks. So we had to send him down again, which is and my fear the- is going to happen. And I think you also need to be careful about promoting people 100% for the right reasons. And by that, I mean for baseball reasons. Remember when Max Meyer was brought up last year? It was announced several days in advance. He was going to start at home against the Phillies. They wanted to sell some tickets. We had him on the radio the day before he made his Major League debut live in-game. He was on TV live in-game the day before he made his Major League debut. And it's a marketing tactic. We're trying to sell tickets. We're trying to excite people about this team. We're trying to prove to people that this build that's now in year six is working. Well, how did it work out? He had a shaky major league debut in his second start. Doesn't make it out of the first inning. Needs Tommy John surgery. You got to do it because the baseball people are a million percent convinced now is the time. This guy's ready. There can't even be a hint of trying to do it for other financial motives. And I hate to say it, but Max Meyer, I think, was kind of handled that way. And uh, you don't want to see that happen again. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, we could rant about this for a while. <laughs> it's like, uh, uh, and uh, again, it's the best interest. And in, I love the organizations. They all say, put players in the best position to succeed. And yet they don't. It was, and this kind of, I, when the Cubs were in town, I, I went, went there and saw one of the games and uh, it was good. I saw Brad Penny and uh, he was there. Good to catch up with Brad Penny. And I made a point to interview in Ian Happ of the Cubs. And it's kind of funny because we've had kind of this Twitter, you know, friendship with me and Ian Happ because in 2020, the shortened season, I had an MVP vote and I had Happ as 10th on my ballot. And I was the only writer to put Ian Happ on the ballot. So I was wanting to kind of explain to him my rationale. And just in our, our conversation, I noted, you know, some of my frustrations of good young players who are in bad situations and it's hard for them to succeed. I said, I brought up Riley Green, for instance, who's a guy who I've been very high on was, you know, urging the Marlins to strongly consider drafting instead of JJ Bleday. Uh, but they want to go the college route because they always hit the big leagues first. Although at 20, Riley Green hit the big leagues before Bleday. Um, and I noted to Ian, I said, it frustrates me because I think this kid, I think he's 21, maybe he just turned 22. Um, I said, this kid's amazing hitter and a lot of talent, but he's on a team that it's very hard for him to have success. And consequently, he's hitting 220, 230. Um, and I said, well, maybe like his teammate uh, Torkelson, who was 1-1 a couple of years earlier, he's struggling up there with Detroit as well. You know, these were guys who are top 10 prospects at, at or number one overall prospects. And they're struggling to start their careers because they're on teams that aren't very good and in lineups and they get caught up in the negativity. And it, and it's and they're expected to, to come in. They're expected to come in on day one and be at the heart of a lineup and be the key to this team's success rather than just dropping into the number seven spot in the batting order and being surrounded by established big league players. These players aren't given the chance to ease into it at all. And, and that's a tough position to be in. Every now and then, somebody is able to excel in that spot, but it's not very often. And you no. mentioned Ian Happ, Happ, who uh, is name is literally a four-letter word in these parts. I remember it was Happ who, on the very first pitch on opening day, game one of the Bruce Sherman, Derek Jeter era, hit the home run at Lone Depot Park off Jose Urania. So literally on the very first pitch of the Sherman Jeter era, the Marlins were down one nothing, and it feels like they've been trying to play catch up on and off the field ever since. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> interesting stuff. Uh, Dave, what else? Well, you guys are talking a little bit about marketing of players. I was going to see if you're we could be a little bit of a sharp right here, but MLB marketing. We've chatted a little bit about the gambling and marketing right now with MLB right behind home plate, and we saw. I don't know if you, both you guys saw the Alabama coach, uh, Joe. Yeah, Al I saw it. <laughs> it's an oh. Alabama alum. I saw that one. Yeah, wasn't, this is, wasn't very happy. You no, know? this is not an Alabama bang on Alabama, but it's happening in college sports. But with baseball, it's so prevalent now. It's right in the stadiums. Um, how dangerous do we think this can become with with this gambling situation? Because again, we saw in college baseball. Um, do we think baseball's right in its own epitaph right now? You want to lead off, Joe? Yeah, yeah, I'll take it. It's. I, I get revenue and I get business and, and I'm all for it. And that seems to be where the money is for sure. And that also can, if you could, if you draw 10,000, but those 10,000 are betting a lot, you could 
do pretty well financially. And a lot of a uh, lot of teams have the the you know the the betting uh, services right in buildings next to their stadium. So I, I get all that, and it's it, it's so touchy. I think I think that it could. I don't think it'll infiltrate the product in a, in a way. I think it infiltrates the, the the fan to make the fan lose the relationship with the player, which, you know, we had tried to bring out the good in the player, the you know, the interesting angles of the player and to a fan base that losing money on the player, they don't care about that. They see a bottom line, you know, this guy hurt my fantasy team or this guy, I, you know, I put money on to hit a home run and he didn't come through for me. So it is, it is a slippery slope, but, I think it's it's certainly here. I think it's kind of like you know, it's kind of like the internet or or, or the Statcast, the the high end analytics. It's not foolproof and perfect, but you got to live with it. I think that you have to kind of adapt to it and keep it at arm's length the best you can. Now, I'm all for anybody who wants to place bets legally having the chance to place bets legally. I do think though it's a bit of a slippery slope in the world of sports where everything is built on integrity and knowing that this pitcher is doing everything he can to win this game tonight. And the man at the plate facing him is doing everything he can to win this game tonight. And for a sport that many, many, many years ago was rocked by the black Sox scandal in 1919 for a sport that remember at one time, and even after they had retired from baseball, they banned Mickey Mantle and Willie Mays from yep. working in the game for a bit because they were serving as greeters at a casino in Las Vegas. They were that afraid of the connection. Then you have the Pete Rose betting scandal. Uh, I understand the revenue. There's a lot of revenue involved, and that's a big part of the reason why baseball is doing this. But all of a sudden, you know, you talked about the Brad Bohannon situation in Alabama. The bet in question was placed at a sports book at Great American Ballpark, the home of the Cincinnati Reds, that sportsbook which just recently opened up there. So it's a very dangerous position for baseball to be walking around in. And I understand, I think, some of what is at the heart of this. I think so often you see Major League Baseball saying quietly, not publicly, why can't we be more like the NFL? Because the NFL is an absolute juggernaut in terms of interest, in terms of ratings, in terms of everything. Financial success, certainly. And what is it that makes the NFL so popular among so many fans? Why is it that you might be a Dolphins fan, but you'll spend your Sunday watching three different games, even if the Dolphins aren't playing? But in baseball, you only watch your team, it seems like. And in the world of football, it's because fantasy football is huge and gambling is huge. And that's, I think, in a way, what baseball is trying to get to. But you got to be really careful. Yeah, yeah. There's no doubt about all those things you say. And uh, you know, my thing with with Bohannon is you got to be smarter. You know, you got to realize, you know, what you know what you're representing and and anything that looks, you know. And it's just as a as a Bama alum, it's a little frustrating after seeing, you know, what happened in basketball with the shooting incident and the players, you know, involved, you know, in, in the connection there, what that did is just kind of putting a black eye on, on my university. I'm just wish that they would use a little better judgment. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know how you, how do you deal? I think it's, it's here to stay though, Gaff. I mean, we, we have to acknowledge that. No question. And, and it is. like you I, say, right. it's, uh, 
you know, the NFL is getting away with it. But again, I, I, you know, and you raise superly, super great points is I'm looking at it too, as the relationship of fan to players and how we like them. And, and, and I just, you know, one of the things I picked up when I was at the, the Marlins Cubs game was, you know, obviously there are a lot of Cub fans that come out and, and they're the kids on the field, you know, who get that access for batting practice and seeing, you know, my guy Ian Happ go over signed autographs and Cody Bellinger went over signed autographs and, and, you know, just what that means to a young fan when you see the big leaguers, especially the named ones, you know, going over and signing an order. And we know that Jazz does that. Uh, Luis Arise does that. What it, what it does to a young, a young fan to see that that you once you get that autograph you're a lifelong baseball fan and you kind of want to know about that player and i just don't want the bottom line of the dollar uh and the gambling aspect of it kind of eroding you know these the personalities of the players which they so desperately want but you know to this point on on gambling i wonder if it's part of the reason why these umpires are cracking down so much on the sticky stuff. I know they're, they're all, you know, we, we know about the Scherzer thing, but I'm not sure you're aware of this story, but you know, Frida, my wife uh, pointed this out before we went on the air about Zach Eflin. Did you hear this story? Pitching yesterday no, for I Tampa didn't. Bay. I know apparently he has, apparently he has a, like a rubber uh, wedding band that he wears, you know, now he's a right-handed pitcher under his glove. His, under the glove, he has this this rubber, you know, uh, band, which is uh, his wedding band. Well, he'd been wearing it for a couple of years, and he's told the umpires about it and had no issue. Except for yesterday, the first base umpire said, you got to take that off or we're throwing you out of the game. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Eflin, he took it off and, and he still was dealing. <laughs> but I'm like, what on earth? Talk about the ridiculousness. Uh, what on earth could that glove be doing? What do you think? He's scuffing the ball somehow. It raises some indentation in the pocket that he's able to somehow manipulate the baseball better. I mean, it, you, know, you, you take the glove off, you rub the ball up with your two hands. Yeah, I guess that. Yeah, I guess they could do that. Uh, you know, but 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 still, no, to your point, uh, you know what I don't like, and this to me was the biggest crime of the steroid era. Everybody in baseball was using steroids, but because a handful of people were, some number of people were, and some number of people admitted to it, and some number of people were busted for it, everybody in the sport is looked at with suspicion. And for the longest time, anybody who all of a sudden went from hitting 10 home runs to hitting 18 home runs was looked at with suspicion because of what some other people did, rightly or wrongly. And that's kind of where we are with some of this stuff now. If a couple of people get involved in something, all of a sudden, well, everybody's doing it, and everybody's under suspicion. And that's not a good place, not a healthy place for baseball or any sport to be. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it absolutely is. And obviously, it gets to that word integrity and to try to make the game. And I, I get it. So it that kind of tells me when they're cracking down on on the, the the rubber wedding bands and they're cracking down on Scherzer uh, with rosin mixed with alcohol and I know Dave can kind of weigh in because he has some really good good stuff uh, with the, some of the other podcasts. What's what are your thoughts on some of that, Dave? Well, the, the Jim Cott spoke pretty eloquently about the number of things used over time, and I, I don't know if you guys saw the David Cohn experiment he did uh, with the mm-hmm. rubbing alcohol. He showed how it allows the hands to stay sticky. As I talked to pitchers throughout, and Jim spoke about it on our, our podcast, he said it doesn't last very long. 
Um, but it's, you know, the number of times the ball, the revolutions it takes from the hand to home plate, it's, you know, a tenth of a second, two tenths of a second. It's not, not as, not enough to be tossing guys out on is I guess what it's, what it's been come to. But, um, you know, I, I think we like to get distracted by things and I always speak on behalf of a hitter. I, you know, I was a hitter. I, you take as much time as you want in that mound to throw. You put whatever you want in your hands to make sure you have control of that ball because you could kill me anytime you want. That was my philosophy up there at the plate. So whatever happens with that ball, I'll adjust. But, uh, yeah, I just think we get distracted with that stuff too easily. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think what was it rosin bags was the issue. People were using their private rosin bags, and that became the, uh, the problem with pitching. I think it's just too much. It's putting too much on the umpires to make judgment calls where there's no strict guidelines or rules. So I, I think that's the, that's the faction that gets lost here. The umpires are being placed in and now that they have the box for the strike zone that everybody in the world can judge them. And then now they have the uh, instant replay. And then now they're, they have this open-ended rosin question. So I feel bad for them guys. Yeah. It just makes me think a- that, that the, uh, the automated, you know, umpires coming that the, the strike zone will, that will come. You know, if they're if they're cracking down on this so much, and it's kind of it, this is me just talking as a cup, but I have to, you know, cut connecting dots. If if they're that worried about Zach Eflin's wedding band, which is rubber, not even you know a, a gold or, or or one, or you know how much rosin, and it, they're they're probably looking to get the most accurate ball strike calls because somebody's losing money on those on those pitches, a handful of game that don't go the way that. Um, somebody thinks they should go. When you talk about the grip stuff specifically, I don't know how many people realize, but they're using an experimental baseball in double A this year. It's yeah. a tackier ball. It's Certainly. similar to what's been used in Japan in the past. Uh, and there's a lot of hope that this might be part of the solution down the line. However, I just saw a story on the athletic. I think Sam Blum, who covers the angels wrote this about a week or so ago about the angels being very concerned about issues that their double A players are having with this baseball. And so they haven't found the perfect answer yet. They're working on it. But to me, the, the story here is, unfortunately, with so many great things happening in baseball, that we got to waste time talking about stuff like this instead of talking about Shohei Otani or the Tampa Bay Rays or the Pittsburgh Pirates or whatever, Luisa Rise, maybe chasing 400 this year. What a great story that would be. And you just wish we could keep all the focus on that stuff. Uh, yeah, and there have been a lot of positives with the rule changes this year also. I know people love the pace of play. And the time of game being reduced dramatically, but uh, you know, you just hope we get to the point where the focus can be 100 percent on the field and so many great things that are happening out there. Oh, I, I think there's, yeah, I, I agree. This has been a pretty exciting season so far, and uh, and baseball's got to be generally pleased. You know, they kind of rode the WBC momentum into the year and and uh, the good storylines, as you say. But also, when you're adapting, you know, new rule changes and such, there's going to be these little hiccups and in, in these incidents that, that, you know, kind of rise to the surface and, and um, you know, we're addressing them all. So um, we're getting there. We'll push for time here. Uh, Dave, you got anything last for, for Geff? And then we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up. Yeah. Two real, two quick ones. And one was, as you look, not, not to over dramatize the early part of the season, we kind of hit on that early, but what's your storyline of the year so far in major league baseball? Uh, it's a good question. I think maybe my storyline of the year right now is seeing teams at the bottom of the payroll spectrum excelling while some of the teams at the very top of the payroll spectrum are struggling. 
And I think whether or not it's going to end up like this, we'll see. It's a long season again. There's a reason why they call them averages, as we know. Uh, Nonetheless, it's a reminder that it's not just about spending money. And it's about being smart. And it's about building a good roster, not just loading up on superstars. Can you build a roster 1-26? to Can you have depth in the minor leagues when you need help? And I think it's really cool to see Tampa Bay at the top of the AL East and not just at the top of the division because they've been out of near the top for a while, but excelling in a historic fashion right now. It's exciting to see the Pittsburgh Pirates getting fans in that city excited right now. There's some other teams not spending a ton of money who are playing much better than anticipated. And then you've got the Mets who have set all kinds of records this year off to a shaky start. It's a reminder what happens when a couple of older pitchers miss some time. You know, you have bad luck with, your elite closer getting hurt in the WBC and likely missing the entire season. You have some guys maybe underperforming a little bit. So it's so easy, I think, for people around baseball to just point at dollars and cents and say these teams are going to win and these teams have no chance. It's nice to see that narrative get turned on its ear a little bit, at least in the early going of the season. I got two quick ones. Uh, the athleticism kind of returning to the game, meaning the speed, and we're getting to see these guys uh, – you know, without the shifting and, and the ability to run more, we're just seeing how athletic the players have never been more. And then I'm also very curious to see about uh, Bryce Harper, you know, uh, to see if he's going to be a medical wonder to be back and, and, and return to form and getting Bryce Harper back is always good for Major League Baseball. Good for him to do what he did, to put in the work, to put in the time to get back less than six months after Tommy John's surgery it's really staggering. I would say, Joe, you know, we were both around when Bryce Harper broke into the big leagues. There were a lot of people that didn't like the way he played the game in the beginning. You know, whether it's too intense or too 100 miles per hour at every minute of every game or, or slamming the helmet down when he crossed first base after grounding out seemingly every single time, things like that, kind of rub some people the wrong way. As time has gone on, I think I've really developed an appreciation for Bryce Harper and his passion for the game and how badly he wants to be on the field and help his team win. And there's no better example of that than seeing what he's done coming back from Tommy John surgery in 160 days. Yeah. Yeah. Without so, a minor league rehab assignment too. <laughs> I know. Now this is the beauty of the DH in the national league. It allows for this. Right. And uh, so that's, that's the beauty, hey, but to me, baseball's better with Bryce Harper in it. And, and I'm happy he's there. And uh, we're happy to have, hey, I'm going to play first base if you need me. Yeah. Because we've yeah, had a couple of injuries at first base. Yeah. He'll throw the so ball. Good for and him. Good for him. Good for him. And, uh, and we wishing him well and, and good for Glenn Gaffner to be on with us. And, uh, uh, Dave, last announcements. Yeah, just, uh, Glenn, great job. And remind our audience how we can continue to support you and what you're doing. Uh, Well, the big thing I'm working on right now is this Substack. And if you go to glengaffner.substack.com, I'm writing, uh, on average, about six days a week about the Marlins and about Major League Baseball. And subscriptions are available only $5 for a month, $50, a discounted rate for a full year. A lot of interesting, I think, perspective, and some of it is stats and stories, and some of it is, is long-form essays, and some of it is notebooky type stuff, uh, doing a lot of different things and uh, having a lot of fun with that. The response has been great, so hopefully people will join our View from the Bleachers Substack family. Uh, and again, my website is glengeffner.com, and that's primarily focused on the one-on-one play-by-play coaching that I'm doing with young, aspiring broadcasters, mostly high school and college students who want to get into play-by-play. 
I like that though. It's, it's, it's just what we talk about all the time. It's developing kids at the grassroots, whether it's hitting a baseball or helping an audience understand how to view a game. So uh, baseball world appreciates you digging in and, and doing that. And 17,000 plus subscribers now here. Make sure you continue to download, listen, like, subscribe, rate and review so we can battle those analytics that we do like we do with baseball in the podcast world. We'll keep providing you great content just like this show did today. We're up to 72 countries right now. We're represented to and listened to 72 countries, which is amazing to me. I never thought we would have gotten to that point. Uh, grassroots all the way to MLB front offices. So we got the ear of the right people. We're just trying to build that better baseball IQ. I know, Joe, I get smarter every time I listen, and I'm in on your show. Um, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher is how you guys can listen out there. Hit us up Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. I'll engage one fan audience member a day on Facebook. Get everybody back privately. Follow Joe and man on second. He's hammering out the high school coverage right now. Um, I'm enjoying following that, that uh, Florida baseball. It's great baseball down here. And just a reminder, we, we, we hit you guys with a lot of uncomfortable truths in baseball. We don't hold back. And just, uh, you know, we are we have no time for those little comfortable lies that are out there. So I always remind everybody, buckle your seatbelt, put that helmet on, because we're going to come right at you. Joe, great show today. I'll let you sign this off. Uh, perfect. Thanks, Dave. And thanks for all you do, as always. And thanks to Glenn Geffner, a good friend. And, and all the best to Geff. And he's got an open invite to be on whenever whenever he needs to or wants to have something to say. And and thanks to the listeners as, as we grow this. I, I, I think, you know, these, like Dave said, we're all learning about this and we're sharing what our little bit of insights and trying to impact this game in a positive way the best we can and, and try to expose people as much information on as many topics about the game as we can. And it's a pleasure doing these podcasts. And um, uh, until next week, Joe Frisero, Man on Second, and we are out of here. <laughs>